Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another episode of The Package Tourist, hosted by yours truly, The Package Tourist and the magical mystery tour called Life, Matthew DiBiase. Tonight's guest is historian Shannon Bontrager. Shannon is a professor of history at Georgia Highlands College in Cartersville, Georgia. However, he was born and raised in Michigan and taught for a time at Central Michigan University. Shannon even taught for a year in the Hashemite Kingdom of Jordan at the New English School in Amman, the capital. In 2012, Shannon contributed an article for the Journal of the Early Republic, which is now available on Amazon. Then, in February 2020, Shannon published his first book, Death at the Edges of the Empire, Fallen Soldiers, Cultural Memory, and the Making of an American Nation from 1863 to 1921. This book studies the culture of death, burial, and commemoration of American war dead from the Civil War to the immediate aftermath of World War I, and how America used this newly created culture to forge new political identities and come to terms with its newly found imperial ambitions. Shannon, uh, what inspired you to write this book? Well, uh, first off, thanks for having me on your podcast, Matthew. I really uh, appreciate it. Um, Very well. What inspired me? Yeah. What, what inspired me to um, uh, write the book was probably um, actually going back to my childhood. To well to a certain extent, um, there were kind of maybe two events that happened at the same time. Um, my, uh, my grandparents were Amish. They used to be Amish and they left when, uh, my grandfather was in his forties and, and, um, and he was shunned as a consequence of that. So most of his family, um, really weren't supposed to talk to him or, or carry on a relationship with him. But in the midst of that, my, uh, my grandmother died. I must have been, I don't know, 10 or 11 at the time, and she died of breast cancer. Uh, and um, uh, at the funeral, it was a big mystery as to whether my grandfather's brothers and sisters would show up. Uh, because the local bishop had had uh, told them that they couldn't, uh, because my grandfather was shunned. So um, uh, it was interesting. Uh, all of his brothers and sisters disobeyed the uh, the bishop, and so uh, they showed up at the funeral. And um, they didn't really hang out and talk a whole lot, but they were there to pay their respects. That was a moment that really kind of showed me on an intimate sort of level how death and funerals are political. And uh, even inside of a family, they have this sort of profound moment of, of, of even people trying to, um, when they're not supposed to, they, they try to reach for each other and, and commune with each other. About the same time, um, there was a, a national event that went on, and that was when uh, Ronald Reagan was president. He was trying to, um, in essence, trying to breathe life into a, a new conservative sort of uh, political movement. And to do that, he wanted to have a, an unknown soldier from the Vietnam War buried in the Tomb of the Unknowns. And... What transpired as time went on is that um, people found out who that soldier was. It turned out that it was a, a man named Michael Blasey. 
and um, uh, the Reagan administration probably knew who the um, the who's actually in the Air Force um, who he was. Uh, and I, I remember distinctly watching Reagan commemorate um, what would turn out to be Blasey uh, at the Tomb of the Unknown. Uh, and, and then I remember a little bit later the controversy of when his identity was revealed. And uh, sort of those moments kind of hit me at the same time as a youth. That I just could not believe that death and funerals could be so political. So um, when I got a chance to... Uh, research for my PhD dissertation and then write this book. I, I kind of, uh, this sort of idea has always sort of been in the back of my mind and I, I wanted to explore that and uh, lo and behold, it's, it's always been political in a lot of ways. Now you state in the book that commemoration of the dead created new political identities. Can you expand on that thought? Can you tell our listeners about that thought? What new political identities were created? And was it just one political party that was engaging in this, or is it both the Democrats and the Republicans that were engaging in this, you know, a kind of establishing new political identities? Can you expand on that, please? Yeah, sure. I'm glad you asked me that question. I haven't been asked that yet, and I've been thinking about it a lot because um, at the moment, I guess what I would say is that the Republican Party, going all the way back to Abraham Lincoln with the Gettysburg Address, um, really started this political identity. If we, we had to memorize the Gettysburg Address in high school, maybe you, you can re remember it um, verbatim. I, I, I can remember some parts of it, but, but the, the key sort of idea here in the Gettysburg Address is that um, Lincoln promised, he made the dead a promise at, at, on the battlefield. He, he said, um, the living will remember you for what you did here and um, and for um, saving a nation uh, that was based on a, a new birth of freedom. And of course, he was alluding to emancipation and uh, ending slavery. And as time has gone on uh, through the 19th century, that promise uh, was reinforced by uh, every administration. Um, Republicans tended to renew it and even transform it. For example, um, William McKinley in uh, the late 1890s, he needed to um, get Southerners to support his war in Cuba and in the Philippines. So he extended that, what I call Lincoln's promise, to Confederate soldiers and kind of flipped that political identity on his head, um, Lincoln promised that the living would remember those dead who fought for freedom. And, and McKinley is now saying, oh, and those who fought against freedom will be remembered by the nation as well. Uh, Democrats have done the same thing from Woodrow Wilson to FDR uh, all the way through the 20th century. Uh, they, I would say the Democrats really haven't invented new ideas, uh, new political identities, but they certainly have tried to capitalize on, um, on this, these identities through the 20th century. The only president that probably moved away from this was the most uh, recent one, um, not Joe Biden, but uh, Donald Trump. He, uh, on several occasions, sort of 
distanced himself from what I call this Lincolnian tradition, this sort of idea or this political identity that's been around since the 1860s. And uh, that has been kind of a, a new and sort of interesting uh, moment in the present. We'll see how, how the future plays out. Now, you also talked about, as America was creating this new culture of commemorating the war dead, you were tying it with its with America growing as an imperial power, as it were. My question is this, as America was creating this new culture of commemorating the war dead with its newly found imperial ambitions, was this country, was our country merely following in the footsteps of other imperial nations like Britain or France, or was this new culture utterly unique in, in the world in the world as it were? Yeah, that's an interesting question. Um, I would say that probably with Lincoln, um, well, we could go all the way back to ancient Greece to see sort of the origins of it, right? Uh, this, yeah. this sort of idea of the Athenian uh, unknown soldier um, or sort of Pericles' speech um, to rally the troops. So in that way, it's not new. Lincoln is probably the one who articulates it for the American experience. Um, but no, it's actually, as uh, particularly in World War One, it's kind of, it goes through a, a degree of variation and copycatting. Uh, for example, the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier, you could argue, is the ultimate expression of Lincoln's promise. Uh, uh, the living will remember the dead. And here, World War One, so many people died that um, it, it became easier to just sort of substitute one unknown soldier to accomplish that goal. But America is not the one, the Americans are not the ones who created that. That was already done in France and in Britain um, almost immediately after the First World War, and, and the United States didn't do it until 1921. So mm. there's been a lot of variation. Let's say that the Americans can, um, as we do, so well with everything, we don't really invent maybe new things, but we we take them and sort of transform them and and uh, and sort of make them our own. Shannon, who in your book, who are the key individual individuals in the forefront of creating this new culture of commemorating the war dead? Who are the key individuals? You know, on the one hand, you have people like uh, Abraham Lincoln, uh, Woodrow Wilson. Uh, um, Warren G. Harding, uh, who dedicates the Tomb of the Unknown Soldiers. So on the one hand, you do have these very uh, powerful political players um, who are making this transformation, but they also need the help of the public. And so there's a lot of, shall we say, um, maybe um, unnamed or unknown middle-class people who... Ooh. Sorry, I'm not sure what's happening. There's a player back here. I can hear you. <laughs> okay. I'm not sure there's some sort of advertisement or something going on. Sorry, hold on, Matthew. My phone malfunctioned. Okay, sorry. Sorry, can you still hear me? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, sorry, my phone malfunctioned for a second. But um, anyway, uh, getting back to your question, uh, who, who are the key players? There's there's all these middle class people who um, who buy into uh, into this uh, this commemorative tradition. Uh, people uh, want to commemorate um, the dead. They uh, uh, mothers and and fathers and 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 brothers and and, and lovers and and uh, widows have this um, human desire to uh, remember their loved ones who died in war or who sacrificed for the nation. Uh, and so I try in the book to talk about, you know, kind of history from below and history from above at the same time. Not only are these political leaders playing a key role, but we have all these Americans who are collaborating with them. Um, they, uh, they support the idea. So um, a lot of different people are, are, are playing their specific roles. How key a factor were the enormous ca casualties in both the Civil War and World War I that contributed to forging this new culture of commemorating the dead and creating these new political identities? I mean, did it have a, was it a, a key factor, the enormity of the casualties? You know, in uh, World War I, there's fewer casualties than in the Civil War. But the kind of casualties are horrific. Yeah. Um, it's a new kind of fighting, chemical weapons, yeah. uh, uh, gas attacks, and what have you. Um, so there, there still are uh, a couple of hundred thousand casualties total uh, when we count uh, wounded, um, missing. Um, the Civil War is a massive number. Um, I think the count now uh, is up to over 700,000 dead. But when we count the number of um, wounded, um, missing, uh, I think the number jumps up to uh, several hundred thousand more. So it's well over a million uh, people. And that's at a time when the American population is much smaller. So uh, in the Civil War, um, there's probably not a single American. There'd be, there'd be uh, almost every American would have been somehow touched by that war through, a, through some sort of casualty. Um, the First World War has fewer numbers, um, but also uh, more advanced technology for um, communicating about how the war was fought. Radio is just beginning to take off. Um, you have uh, all kinds of new print media that is uh, able to communicate more effectively. Um, and so uh, there may not have been as many uh, numbered uh, casualties in the First World War, but significant, and of course, uh, the technology in the First World War is going to uh, be able to reach uh, so many more people and get them to think about these new political and cultural realities. Shannon, you you teach in the South, you teach in Georgia, you teach college at Georgia, and your book came out just before last summer when we saw protesters toppling, toppling Confederate statues, and you all, and now you're seeing cultural and political pundits advocating for either the removal or the reinterpretation of Confederate monuments. 
How do these present day protests fit within the intellectual framework of your book? And were you personally surprised by these protests? And what, how do you see this as like a reinterpretation of your commemoration of the dead culture that you established in your book? How, what is your interpretation of what happened last summer with these protests? Yeah, thanks for that question. That's a really interesting sort of component because I, I, I think, well, first of all, I should say that some of the monuments that are coming down, I'm, I'm very surprised. I never thought that I would see, for example, um, General Lee's, uh, it hasn't come down yet, but it's 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 um, sort of up for coming down. Um, General Lee's uh, monument in Richmond, Virginia, the, the center of the Confederacy. Yeah. Uh, some of these are just um, amazing uh, moments, and um, I guess I would argue that uh, some of them are a long time coming. Uh, in some ways, I'm surprised because um, they are so powerfully entrenched in American memory. Uh, in some ways, I guess I'm not surprised because... Um, this is a, a moment, an opportunity here in the present for us to reconcile uh, the past and some of the problems of the past. And in that way, I think that what we see with some of these monuments coming down, which, by the way, are not really Confederate monuments so much as they're segregationist monuments. Mm. Because mm. They were created during the days of segregation, most of them were not created after the Civil War. They were created, you know, a generation later. Mm. Um, so I kind of refer to more as segregation monuments, even though they're, they're, they're Confederate figures um, mm. that are being depicted. Um, I think that this is a moment where we see um, people beginning to reconcile at least the memory of the past uh, with, with the, the present. And um, it's now morphing into a, a little bit of a counter movement because now in San Francisco, for example, the school board there has recommended to um, rename high schools named after Abraham Lincoln uh, because Lincoln, you know, he did some not so nice things uh, as president, particularly with uh, Native American peoples mm -hmm. in the West. Mm -hmm. And and so now we're seeing... Uh, this this sort of sort of counter movement to it because uh, there was this protest against the San Francisco school board for doing this and and the school board is now backed off uh, as of yesterday I think they said they were going to suspend this they had this whole committee on renaming all their schools in the in the city and so uh, so we're kind of in this moment of trying to figure out exactly what kind of values do we want as a nation um that's really what monuments represent they don't represent history they're not really historical they represent memories and they represent values and uh, i think we're having a fascinating conversation at the moment of the kind of values that uh that we want to pass on to our children in, in monumental form shannon where can readers find your book is it available in stores you have to order in stores. You can find it on Amazon, and you can find it at the um, the um, University of Nebraska Press, uh, who's the publisher. You can go there. From time to time, the University of Nebraska Press has these lovely sales 
40% or 50% off. And I just uh, found out, uh, I don't know, a while back that uh, the book is going to come out in paperback uh, in the fall of this year. So oh, wow. uh, if people want to pick it up uh, and in the paperback, uh, there's, there's going to be an opportunity to do that in the not too distant future. Shannon, whenever I interview an author, I always love, this is a standard question that I always ask, and I always love asking this question. When you were growing up, who were your favorite authors? And of those favorite, author, of those favorite authors, which ones may have inspired you to become an author in your own right, or perhaps may have influenced your own writing style? Uh, <laughs> that's a tough question. Um, you know, one, one author that I remember sticking out in my memory uh, when I was a kid was, um, I must have been 11 or 12 at the time, uh, maybe in fifth grade, but in 1984, we, my teacher, Mrs. Bowersmith, um, she had us read George Orwell's 1984, mm. and I was blown away, absolutely blown away by by that book. Um, and uh, uh, I think that's probably the first book that really got me interested in in the idea of writing and, and authorship. Um, as a kid, that's 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 the book I would say. Um, <clears throat> As, as a historian, there's been many, too many to, to mention, but uh, Orwell is probably the one that really really has um, has made an impact on me. Shannon, what is your next book project, and when can we expect its release? So the book I'm working on right now um, is is called, it's a working title at the moment, called uh, the, the Affinity of War, mm. uh, Traveling Memory, uh, fallen soldiers and the American Empire in France, and um, I was able to go to the French uh, to Paris. I don't know five or six years ago and collect all these uh, French language archives that uh, document uh, that um, that describe American uh, cemeteries and monuments in France built between World War One and World War Two. And um, I'm in the middle of translating all these documents. No, nobody, no American scholar has seen these uh, documents or used these documents before. Ooh. And uh, so I am I'm translating these documents into, into English, and then I'm going to write a, a history of, of American monuments and, and, and American memory uh, after World War I leading up to and, and through World War II. Uh, when the Nazis took over or invaded France, um, the Americans uh, uh, were <laughs> at, at pains to try to still commemorate the war dead. Um, and they even had to evacuate and leave uh, France for a, a period of time in the Second World War uh, until, until the war was over and uh, the Normandy invasions and and the Allied invasion of, of France allowed the Americans to come back. So basically from 1919 uh, 19 to 1943, 1944 is, is, and is, is the topic of the next book. And I'm hoping it'll be out maybe in a couple of years. Uh, if I could get these documents translated, uh, that, that'll be the bulk of the work. And it's, it's interesting to talk about that because didn't I read something like Eisenhower when he was a young officer? Wasn't he involved with American monuments in like France or something like that? I mean, were you consulting like the Eisenhower Presidential Library to see 
his involvement in that? Because wasn't he part of that commission to help out with the American war dead in France? Wasn't he part he of that? He absolutely was. He yeah. absolutely was. He um he wrote the 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 um well at least he wrote a draft of the guidebook. So they 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 wrote this guidebook that Americans could uh, get and they could use it as they toured all the monuments around France. And he was the one who compiled that and um, and, uh, and and uh, edited it and, uh, uh, and got it ready for, for print. And a lot of people see this as uh, advantageous for him during the Second World War because he knew the landscape so well because he, because he had researched all these <laughs> these monuments. Um, but the key individual here, who's actually making the decisions is Eisenhower's boss, which is uh, John uh, J. Pershing. Yeah. The one who heads the American Battle Monuments Commission. And Eisenhower works for Pershing for a couple of years uh, yeah. doing this. And so I consulted uh, a lot of Pershing's uh, stuff. Shannon, I want to thank you so much for appearing on my show. And, pl and let me know as soon as that your next book comes out. I want you on my show again. Okay, Shannon? <laughs> Thank you so much, Matthew, and I really appreciate the opportunity to be on your show. I'll, I'll definitely keep in touch, and uh, I look forward to doing it again. Thank you. Oh, it's a great honor and a privilege. And Shannon, uh, may you and your family uh, be absolutely safe, and uh, best of luck uh, for this year and all your future endeavors, okay? Thank you, and you too, Matthew. Take care. Thank you. Bye-bye. Okay, bye. Stay tuned, ladies and gentlemen, for next week's show, where I will be interviewing baseball author Mike Brown. Thank you and good night.